the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. Hello, hello everyone. This is Darwin Mesadu. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, Alexander Calder redefined sculpture by introducing the element of movement. He is perhaps best known for his large, colorful sculptures, which incorporate elements of humor and chance into uniquely engineered structures. But first, let's get into some art news. Let's do some uh, rapid fire real quick. Uh, what's in the headlines in the art world? Um, the envelope, please. This one is uh, this headline. After a whirlwind opening week, the Venice Banal uh, named the winner of its prizes. In a first, both of its uh, highest honors went to black women. Alex Greenberger reports uh, Sonia Boyce, who was re- representing Great Britain with a video installation installation with that channels and celebrates the work of black female musicians, took home the Golden Lion for Best National Pavilion, while Simone Lee garnered the Golden Lion for the best contribution to the event's main show, The Milk of Dreams. The jury praised Lee's soaring 2019 sculpture, Brick House, which previously graced the High Line in New York as rigorously researched, virtuously uh, realized, and uh, powerfully persuasive. The Silver Lion for a promising young artist in the central show went to Ali Cherry. Uh, for more on the prizes, including special mentions presented by the jury, um, check uh, out art news for that. Uh, moving on, art and politics. The United Nations uh, Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, aka UNESCO, said that it is postponing a meeting of its World Heritage Committee that had been scheduled for June in Kazan, Russia. Um, the proposal to postpone came from Russia's ambassador to the group. Yeah, the proposal came from the ambassador to the group. But you know they was going to cancel on you first. So it's kind of like, it's not me, it's you. Let me break up with you first before I get dumped. But okay, I see what you're doing there. Some international officials had been calling for the meeting to be relocated due to the country's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, and so you call yourself, okay, whatever. Uh, meanwhile, uh, TAN reports uh, that uh, TAN, uh, which is a news organization, Reports Russian artist Oleg Kulik was questioned by law enforcement officials about his statue, Big Mother. It's a 2015 uh, piece after lawmakers claimed that it mocked a statue honoring the Battle of Stalingrad, a potential offense. Uh, Kulik, who is perhaps best known for acting remarkably like a dog in a series of performances, performance art, said that was not his intention in the piece and that if he knew it would be seen that way, I would not have even started it. Moving right along with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman reducing the amount of income that Saudi royals receive, some are selling prized assets, including real estate holdings, jewelry, and artwork. That's how that ties in. Uh, You can read up on that at the Wall Street Journal. Next up, we have Iraq's Ministry of Culture is currently hosting an 
exhibition of about 100 works of contemporary art by artists from the country. A number of pieces were uh, recovered abroad after the pillaging of museums during the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of the country. War crimes abound. The Museum of Modern Art in New York is planning a major survey of the work of German expressionist Kath Koltwitz uh, and recently acquired a lithograph jointly with Manhattan's new gallery. The circa 1904 self-portrait uh, is now on view in a permanent collection gallery at the MoMA. You can read up on that one at Art Newspaper. Moving right along, speaking of prints, an unseen etching that uh, Lucian Freud rejected or reworked art by published for the first time as part of a definitive study that will document every print he ever created. Dahlia Albridge reports this one for us at, at The Guardian. Uh, the catalog uh, Raison from Modern Art Press comes out next month. All right, what else do we have here? So the artist Gary Simmons, who currently has a show at Hoser and Worth in Los Angeles sat for an interview with Leanne Jackson. The work forces you to go down certain parts of memory lane, of your memory lane. Uh, he said of his partially erased chalkboard drawings. Oh, I'd recently um, installed a chalkboard wall at the house and it's interesting to see those faded images when you erase things on there. So that's kind of cool. It nudges you into rethinking how certain images came into your life. All right, what else do we have here? So here's a look at the serene looking upscale New York compound that architects Jeannie and Thomas Pfeiffer of Thomas Pfeiffer and Partners, um, Glenstone Museum of Modern Art Warsaw, designed for themselves. What Jeannie and I were trying to do is heighten the experience with the land, Thomas said. More on that at the Wall Street Journal. And the final piece of rapid fire news here, a life... Um, a life-changing education. So at the New York Academy of Arts Tribeca Ball last week, artist Kenny Scharf was a guest of honor and was toasted by the school's chairwoman, Eileen Guggenheim, as an artist who created his own scene. John Ortved reports at the New York Times on this. Uh, it turns out that Guggenheim and Scharf go back a long way. She was one of his teachers at the University of California, Santa Barbara, before he decided to decamp to New York. Prior to taking her class, the artist said he wanted only to study the three B's, bongs, beers, and babes. Okay, looking to see him unpack that at the New York Times. So that's it for some rapid fire. Um, a couple interesting full articles here um, that I want to just throw on your radar. Uh, in case you're in the market, you know that uh, famous... Uh, picture or the painting of Washington crossing the Delaware well it hung at the White House and it's now for auction at Christie's in uh, in May so the famous Washington crossing the Delaware um, it hung at the White House from 1970 to 2014 it's coming up for auction next month when it is estimated to fetch about 20 million dollars the 1851 oil painting is one of three versions painted by Emanuel Lutz of the man who was to be the first US president leading troops during a key moment of the American Revolution, only two survived. The first version was destroyed during World War II air raid in Germany, said American art specialist Paige uh, uh, Kestenman at Christie's New York. Wait a minute, what? The first version was destroyed during World War II air raid in Germany? What? Why was the... 
<laughs> why was that over there? Why was that even over there? Somebody was, and that was in Germany? How did this dude, so Hitler had himself a portrait of Washington crossing the Delaware and an air raid, you know, from the Allied forces destroyed it? That is such a weird turn of events. All right, uh, finishing off here, the second is the monumental work that is centerpiece of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, American Wing. And the third is um, this work right here. So the one that's in the uh, the White House. Oh, that wasn't White House. So the, the version at the New York Met measures uh, 12 by 4 to 21 um, feet. So the, the painting uh, goes goes on sale May 12th. It's it's a little bit smaller. So it's this one is going to be three by six feet. Sorry, you're going to lose a couple inches there, but, you know, uh, still might fetch you the 20 mil. Maybe you can ask for a discount. Eh, two, three mil, you know, amongst friends. Uh, it had hung for decades at the White House, mainly in the West Wing reception room. The work depicts, of course, George Washington leading soldiers across the Delaware to surprise the infantry hiding on the other side on Christmas night, 1776. A German-born American immigrant, Lutz was also a staunch abolitionist, and in Washington crossing the Delaware, he deliberately included a variety, a variety of figures that make up the melting pot that formed the American nation. She pointed out a black soldier, another soldier wearing a Scottish bonnet, and, a moc and uh, moccasins and buckskin clothing suggesting the American West and the Native Americans. Wow, you know, I never took all of that into consideration when I uh, first saw the... Um, this, I mean, I've seen this iconic por uh, portrait so many times and, you know, I never picked up on those nuances. Matter of fact, now that I'm looking at it, it looks like somebody on there looks like a conquistador. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a, it's a melting pot indeed uh, in a portrait. But, all right, so that's cool. That's interesting. Uh, we'll see what it fetches and I'll report back to you guys uh, after that sale is over. So, for the last and final deep dive, um, we are looking at this mysterious gift of 50 million dollars unprecedented right yeah so what happened here is that the bruce museum and by the way i'm reading this from art news so you can check it out it's uh written by angela uh, vila over there at art news uh in april about around april 20 26. so the bruce museum a greenwich institution that holds ex exhibitions related to the arts and sciences has received a collection of 70 works of art amassed by a local anonymous couple, making it the largest art donation ever to the museum in its 112-year history. Figures in the area familiar with the Greenwich culture scene are remaining quiet about the identity of the local donor. Despite calls to nearly 20 Greenwich and New York insiders by Art News, no one is revealing the name. However, clear signs point to a discreet auction buyer with an established philanthropic footprint. An analysis of past sold and comparable auction prices for 17 works in the collection, or nearly 25% of the number of works making up the gift, revealed the collective value of the works is estimated at upward of $50 million. Hmm, maybe you could do a little trade and get you Washington across the Delaware. One of the works in the collection is Edward Hopper's uh, Bridal Path, which sold for $10.2 million in uh, 2012 uh, at Christie's. And uh, and Mary Cassett's two little sisters. That one sold for five hundred and nineteen thousand dollars in twenty twenty. So you know, fetching some good prices here. So in twenty sixteen, Bridal Path 
and Camille Passaro's uh, Phonation Arigny. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Uh, Bridal Path. So I'll look it up later. Uh, which is also on, in the in the gift. We're showcased in an ex exhibition of works on loan from an anonymous alumnus at the University of Vermont's Fleming Museum of Art. Local philanthropist uh, Stephen Grossman is a UVT alum and major donor to university school, uh, business school. Grossman namesake charitable foundation was among the top four donors to give to the Bruce Museum's expansion campaign in October 2020. None of that is com uh, it confirms. However, Robert uh, Walterstoff, the Bruce Museum's executive director and CEO, declined to identify the lender, citing reasons related to confidentiality. So the Bruce's $60 million expansion project is due to uh, double the size of the museum with a renowned 40, uh, uh, 43,000 square foot space dedicated to exhibitions and public programming. Construction for the project began in October 2020, but stalled in January 2021 because of, guess what, COVID. Calling the gift unprecedented, Walterstorff described it as unmatched in its scale and quality by anything previously given to this museum. In an email interview with Art News, it will help to establish a permanent collection on the level of our exhibition programming he, he added. You know, okay, you said it's part of your permanent collection. Some of these museums, they will, their permanent collection is in hiding. They keep them in warehouses and only bring them out once every decade sometimes, or once a year, depending on if there's a holiday or something that, that meets the theme, or if there's some special exhibition that um, that uh, it, uh, artwork may fit into. But it was a donation to you, and so it should be for, the pub for public consumption, especially if you're working on this 43,000 square foot public space. It should, it should stay up, it should come up, it should stay up, and should have permanent home there. Uh, or, or I understand you have to change things out every once in a while, but like, man, some of these, some of the best artwork is probably sitting some somebody's storage locker somewhere, um, and that just frustrates me to high heaven. So, all right, let's uh, wrap up this article. I'm gonna skip down a little bit see if they have to say anything else interesting about it. It's pretty long, but it's kind of cool that this happened, um, and I'm I'm hoping they, you know. Um, socialize the gains on this one so uh last few paragraphs here there are many strategic collectors in this area said maggie demox they're still trying to figure out who, who the donor was here a curator at the greenwich historical society and cost cog who noted the gift will expand the town's connection to american impressionists that once congregated there in the late 19th century in recent years major works by hopper surfacing at auction after decades in private hands have given the increasingly sleepy American art category, known for attracting a conservative and highly private collection base, a jolt into the modern era. Fittingly, two comedians, which straddles two defining periods of the art historical canon having been produced in the mid-century, now comes to the public forum during a period of transition as museums reckon with connecting the past to the contemporary. So Two Comedians is another piece that was um, that was uh, also donated. And the final part here, it's a massive get for the community, not just for Greenwich, but the surrounding community at large, said Morgan Martin, an American art specialist in Bonham in New York, at Bonham's in New York. It's a cornerstone collection.
So that's good to know that this is happening. Um, I, I hope this is going to be for public consumption, and uh, I hope to see a part of this at some point when I when I visit uh, this particular museum. So that is all uh, uh, all the news for today. Before we get back to our artists, uh, I do have a book recommendation. So this one is an oldie but a goodie. It's The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. So this is Wilde's only novel. It was subject to much controversy and criticism in its time, but has come to be recognized as a classic of Gothic literature. In terms of motifs, the novel's most obvious one is the titular picture of Dorian Gray. When the artist uh, Basil Hallward becomes enthralled with Dorian's beauty and winds up painting the portrait that becomes his masterpiece, the realization hits Dorian that he will one day lose his attractiveness as he ages. I don't know if he was on a rock this whole time and didn't realize if you get old, things start sagging, things get wrinkly. But either way, newly understanding that his beauty will fade, Dorian expresses the desire to sell his soul to ensure that the picture, rather than he, will age and fade. So Dorian allows the portrait to carry all his burdens from for him as he ignores his conscience in pursuit of life, pleasure, drinking, debauchery, hedonism. However, the portrait serves as an external source of a conscience for Dorian. He can't help but, you know, gaze upon it from time to time and feel guilty. And it torments him. It torments him so that that, that he hides it away from any other potential wandering eye. So that's a that's a quick peek into the into the story, into the book there, and it has a lot of messaging in there. Um, if you haven't read it, you know, I won't I won't spoil it any further for you, but I say check that out. And now Back to our artist of the day, Alexander Calder. Alexander Calder, known as Sandy, was born outside of Philly to a successful artist family. His father and grandfather, both named Alexander Calder, were distinguished sculptors and his mother was actually a portrait painter. Calder was born in 1898, the second child of his artist parents. Constructing objects from a very young age, his first known art tool was a pair of pliers. At eight, Calder was creating jewelry for his sister's dolls from beads and copper wire. Over the next few years, as his family moved around, he crafted small animal figures and game boards for scavenged, uh, from scavenged wood and brass. Calder's interest initially led not to art, but to mechanical engineering and applied kinetics, which he studied at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, uh, New Jersey. So that was around 1915, 19. 1920 era. Uh, he is said to have chosen mechanical engineering arbitrarily, simply because someone he befriended was going to study the subject. Nevertheless, he excelled at mathematics, and the experience was later applied to his unique and ingenious artistic approach. Calder actually turned to art in the 1920s, studying drawing and painting under George Lukes and uh, Boardman Robinson at the Art Student League in New York. In his mid-20s, he moved, he moved to New York, where he studied uh, at, the, at the league and worked at the National Police Gazette, illustrating sporting events and the Ringling Brothers and uh, Barnum and Bailey Circus. While working as a graphic artist on assignment at the zoo and circus, Calder discovered his faculty for sketching animals. This subject would become a lifelong passion. Shortly after his move to Paris in 1926, Calder created his Cirque Calder a complex and unique body of art. It wasn't long before his performances of the Cirque captured the attention of the Parisian avant-garde, 
Initially, he created small, movable wood and wire figures, which he then assembled into a miniature circus, complete with balancing acrobats and roaring lions. Uh, the popularity of Calder's circus soon brought him in contact with other artistic innovators. In the early 1930s, inspired by the color and composition of Piet Mondrian's work during his visit to his studio, he describes, It was a very exciting room. Light came in from the left and from the right, and in the solid wall between the windows, there were experimental stunts with colored rectangles and cardboard tacked on. I suggested to Mondrian that perhaps it would be fun to make these rectangles oscillate. And he, with a very serious countenance, said, No, it is not necessary. Well, how would he say it in French? No, it is not necessary. <laughs> I don't know how to do a French accent. <laughs> My painting is already very fast. This one visit gave me a shock that started everything. Calder went on to create his breakthrough mob uh, mobiles. At first, these abstract sculptures were motorized. Later, Calder modified his design to allow free-floating movement, powered only by air currents. These signature works incorporated Calder's interest in physics, astronomy, and kinetics, and above all, his sense of play. By 1933, Calder had returned to the United States, where his abstract organic sculptures, both mobile and stationary, attracted considerable attention and acclaim. He settled in Connecticut and continued to produce innovative work on both a large and small scale. After 1950, Calder spent part of each year in France. In addition to the monumental sculptures that, he, uh, that, that can be seen in the United States and Europe, Calder applied his whimsical and lyrical sense of design to, to media as diverse as uh, jewelry and theater seats. Calder shifted from figurative linear sculptures in wire to abstract forms in motion by creating the first mobiles. So if you're looking for a Calder piece, what, what, are, you, what are you gonna look for to identify? Oh, hey, that's an Alexander Calder. So think of these things com composed of pivoting lengths of wire, counterbalanced with thin metal fins. The appearance of the entire piece may look randomly arranged um, and rearranged in space by chance, simply by the air moving the individual parts and pieces. So you see something like that, you might have stumbled upon a Calder. So he's known for inventing these wire sculptors and uh, the mobile, which is a type of kinetic art, which relied on careful waiting to achieve balance and suspension in midair. Uh, initially, Calder used motors to make these works, as I mentioned before, but you know he then abandoned them to just let the air do the work. Uniting all of Calder's work is a dependence on a viewer's perception of their many elements to achieve their full expression. So they contain infinite forms because they, they're always moving. So you come into a room in particular in one doorway, you might see Calder's work. But if you went through, if you came through a different doorway, you might see a different Calder work, but it's the same sculpture because it has infinite, you know, structure. Uh, in time, or as Calder wrote with familiarization, some of my work, so he wrote, he wrote, some of my work's possible expressions will emerge over time. In this way, the viewer completes an exercise in perception begun by the artist himself. 
the admission of approximation is necessary, Calder wrote. Uh, he also said, one cannot hope to be absolute in his precision. He cannot see or even conceive a thing from all possible points of view simultaneously. While he uh, be weakening the original, there is no end to this. <laughs> to finish the work, he must be approximate. So as he's saying to appreciate his work and to say that, yes, I've seen a Calder, you have approximately seen a Calder because it's all the, all the pieces are always moving. You never see the same thing twice. And so it's approximation is what you will have as a definition of a Calder piece when you stumble upon it. It's, it's fascinating when you, when you think about it that way. Uh, I recently saw a movie called um, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And I would imagine you would have to be in that particular circumstance or of that particular pow power level to be able to say, yes, I've definitively seen a Calder. If you're viewing it every angle uh, <laughs> at all points in time, all at once. Uh, no spoilers about the movie, though, so you should probably go check that out. Uh, I guess I just slipped in a little nugget there for you. Okay, so for today's Ephrastic poem, um, we're going to hear from the artist himself. When he was asked about his thoughts on sculpture, he believed that theories may be all very well for the artist himself, but they shouldn't be broadcast to other people. But he did write a more thorough response to the Abstraction Creation Group Museum in 1933. And that's what we're going to hear today. So before we get into that, here's a reminder. This is going to be a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I want you to visit the Ecrastic page on my website, darwindarko.com. Check the show notes. There should be a link there. At the site, you will find all this stuff cataloged for your viewing pleasures, all the stuff that we discuss from day one. To accompany today's reading, I want you to pull up Man. It's a very large sculpture, stainless steel, there's plates and bolts everywhere. And it can be found in the city of Montreal. So if you're ever in Canada, you should stop by and check it out. So again, this is, we're looking for man. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. How can art be realized out of volumes, motion spaces bounded by the great space, the universe? Out of different masses, light, heavy, middling, indicated by variations of size or color, directional line vectors which represent speeds, velocities, accelerations, forces, etc. These directions making between them meaningful angles and senses together defining one big conclusion. Or many? Spaces. Volumes. Suggested by the smallest means in contrast to their mass, or even including them. Juxtaposed pieces by vectors crossed by speeds. Nothing at all of this is fixed. Each element able to move, to stir, to oscillate, 
to come and go in its relationship with the other elements in its universe. It must not be just a fleeting moment, but the physical bond between the varying elements in life. No abstractions. But abstractions. Abstractions that are like nothing in life, except in their manner of reacting. During his later years, Calder produced many monumental stables. You know, I've been saying stables this whole time. I need to look, I need to look this up because if I'm saying mobiles, you know, they're mobile. You know, I would think stables. But that's, that's not how you spell stables. Um, I mean, how are they saying this? Well, how am I supposed to say this word? See, I'm, I'm just an amateur art enthusiast trying to figure this thing out with you guys. And um, there's all these terms. It's like learning a new language a lot of times. Stabils? <laughs> okay, that's how they... Okay, so it's, it's stabils. Okay. Stabils and mobiles. Got it. All right. Learn something new every day. So uh, during his later years, he was producing these big stabils and mobiles as public works for sites worldwide. Man was commissioned by uh, Montreal's Expo in 1967. Uh, it's 65 feet tall. It's one of Calder's largest sculptors. Uh, work works such as man contribute to the proliferation of public art during the second half of the 20th century. Such grand stabils, <laughs> that sounds so weird, are dynamic works with their arches, points, and flowing forms uh, reaching out in multiple directions. So that's uh, a little bit about that piece. Um, uh, Calder, by the end of his life, you know, he was living both Roxbury uh, Connecticut and Sachet, France. He died in 1976 in New York. Today, if you want to go check out his work, uh, again, there's a ton of his stuff are are out in the world for public consumption. Uh, there's the Flamingo in Chicago. There's a big one in London. And okay, let's see here. So. Uh, his works are held in major museums also. So the MoMA in New York, the National Gallery in D.C., the Whitney, uh, again, that's that's uh, New York, and the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Tate in London. So you may find yourself uh, seeing a Calder, not even realize what you're looking at. And uh, now you know a little about that artist. Uh, you know a little bit about his work. And it's, it, you know, it's sort of... Um, it's really accessible too so like i think this would be a great it could be a great project to create mobiles and stabils at home with a, a child or, or an art class uh, a, a young art class you know you cut up different shapes uh you, you're working with with wires and maybe even um you could have folks bring in twist ties for example and and see how you can connect the shapes uh, if you cut them out, maybe construction paper or cardboard, connect the shapes and see how you can make it balance and twist off of each other and then hang it off of a string and see, see, go where the wind takes you, right? So that does it for us today. We painted, well, we sort of painted, I guess, um, yet another pretty picture with our words. I'm glad you took the time to join me on this journey for this and other artwork we discussed. Remember to visit darwindarker.com backslash infrastic is where you can find all of this stuff catalog for your viewing pleasure. 
if you like the show or if you want to leave some creative feedback again you know please rate us five stars hopefully don't be a hater and leave a comment that's always helpful another great way to support the show is to share it on your socials facebook twitter whatsapp whatever we'll take it uh speaking of which we uh again we are on twitter uh at the ekphrastic instagram the ekphrastic and on youtube just search ekphrastic podcast uh follow the show uh wherever you go uh we put out new content uh all the time and uh you'll get a notification so hopefully we can creep up and uh swim our way up your timeline and uh you can help share the show to your friends recommend it you know and uh, again leave comments I'd love to know uh, other artists that you guys are interested in that maybe I could do a little bit of research on and and bring them to you. And of course, keeping you updated on the art news we have going on in the world today. So I've been Darwin Mesadu. Thanks again for listening to The Acrast.